And welcome to a very special episode of An Earful of Cocktail. Uh, we have uh, a guest on the show who uh, you will probably recognize, uh, at least in name. Uh, he's a screenwriter, director, novelist, and former bartender. Without any further ado, enjoy this interview with Haywood Gould. <laughs> Very good. Um, so um, uh, we uh, obviously, uh, uh, um, as listeners will know, um, have been uh, comparing the book uh, of Cocktail, the novelization of Cocktail, to the movie of Cocktail throughout. Um, we uh, reached out to uh, Haywood Gould, and he was uh, gracious enough to chat with us for a bit about uh, the differences and the process of getting to what we now know as the movie Cocktail. So um, with that said... Um, Hey, well, the the main thing we wanted to chat about, uh, at least initially, is just the process of adaptation from the book to the movie. Uh, we've read things like that there were like thirty or forty drafts, uh, you know, written and a bunch of like kind of back and forth with, um, with, with the uh, you know executives at Disney and 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 whatnot. Uh, so we want to dig into a bit of that. I, I don't know if you can give us some just high level uh, flavor of what that process was like. Well, uh, um, first, um, uh, the book was optioned originally by uh, Universal. Uh, there was an executive there who I was working for in television. I was working on Berettas and and all those TV shows. And he read the boy. He was uh, he was transferred over to the feature department. His name was Kerry McCluggage, and he was transferred over to the feature department. And I just sent him the book, and he said he wanted to do it. So he took an option on the book, and I wrote a bunch of screenplays for Universal. I don't know exactly how many drafts I wrote, um, but I wrote at least ten, <laughs> all under the supervision of. Um, Carrie and Carrie's. Um, um, I was paid for all of them. Those were the good old days, you know. And uh, um, and Carrie's idea was to make uh, the Brian Flanagan character younger and more likable. And he kept hammering at me to do that. And um, you know, I, I I obviously didn't do it to his satisfaction because we we had to do ten drafts. <laughs> and he kept, you know. And um, uh, finally, he got a draft that he liked, and he submitted it to a guy named Frank Price who was running. Universal, and Frank Price said, um, "Who would want to go to see a movie about a bartender?" Pass. So Kerry um, uh, then, you know, was charged with uh, getting, uh, recovering some of Universal's uh, investment. And the way you do that in movie business is you sell the property to another studio. It's called putting a property in turnaround. So he put it in turnaround, and he showed it to Ricardo Mestres. Um, who was an executive um, at Disney. And Ricardo, you know, liked it and uh, pitched it to Jeffrey Katzenberg, who never been a bar in, in, a, in a bar in his life. Uh, um, uh, and that's how the movie came. And then that's how the movie came over to Disney. This is all very technical, I hope. It's, <laughs> it's okay with you guys. Oh, absolutely. Getting I as know, much. You know? I want as but, much okay. nuts and bolts inside business as possible. Yeah. So, like, with the, the draft, the draft as they took, was that more or less the same as the draft as shot? No. The draft Disney took was still very much closer to the book and um, a lot darker. So you can imagine how dark the original... Can you imagine how dark the original drafts were after 10 drafts? It was still dark. So, so uh, uh, yeah. They took a, a, a draft. Essentially, um, I think they bought... Um, uh, and I credit them for this. I think they bought the arena. I think they understand. Well, uh, Ricardo was a New York boy. You know, he'd, he'd been around a little bit. And so had Kerry McCorkage. I was very, very lucky to have two guys who are a little younger and uh, who'd been around the bar scene as students, you know, uh, and, and 
just hung out in New York and in L.A. So they right away saw uh, that this was an arena that was that was interesting to people. Well, a lot of other people in the business who you know were kind of lived you know cloistered lives. You know, the idea that, that everybody's partying every night and, uh, is not true about most of them. Actually, unfortunately, really. And um, uh, anyway, so but these guys had, and they they saw it as a as an interesting arena. So that's what started it all. Yeah, so to get into more detail about how the book is different, I mean, the book, I mean, I recommend everybody, everybody get a copy and, and read it, but the Brian Flanagan in the book is, is 38, he's, he's dissipated, uh, he's a functional alcoholic, he's, he's, he's at points miserable, cynical, uh, you know, just kind of feels like a burden in everyone's life because he, and he, uh, he's suicidal at points and he kind of jumps from job to job, scheming and stealing. Uh, and then, you know, finally, you know, hits his, his cynical kind of you know, happy ending. Uh, I, I guess the, the question is the, the book, uh, as written, uh, I guess the, like really most of the events of the movie are in the first fifth of the book. And my question is, like, when you started, did all the book make it in, or was it, or was it uh, just just segments of, of the original story? Um, no, uh, most of the book did not make it in. Uh, it, it, it was just segments. And when I started, I knew that, um, as opposed to the book, I wanted to carry the uh, uh, Brian Fang and Doug Coughlin uh, relationship a little further in, and make it more of a motor for the you know for the screenplay. Um, and so I knew all that. So, I mean, I can't tell you. I could look at it, um, look at the early drafts. I don't know where they are. And uh, um, But I, most of the book did not make it in. Oh, yeah. In the book, uh, Coughlin is out. Uh, he's, he's, he's gone, dead, uh, you know, 50 pages <laughs> in <early>. or something. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's a ghost who hangs over the rest of the book. He's, 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 a, he's a weight. He, he actually he exists. But on, on film, you actually need to see Doug Coughlin on screen. You know, people want to see him. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's why he had to, you know, uh, had to live in the, in the screenplay. And um, uh, so that was what so that was going on right away. But um, uh, the, the big stumbling block, as far as those people were concerned, was the fact that the character of Brian, you know, continued to be too dark for them. And, and um, uh, um, I carried the, the idea along for, for a lot of drafts. That he sees that the only uh, you know option he has in life, the only chance he has, is to marry a rich woman, and uh, so that went on through most of the drafts until they finally said, "You can't do this." So then I changed it to the character of you know, uh, you know, to a younger guy, you know, who's trying to make it in the world, and uh, this they liked, and so we continued on for thirty, forty more drafts. And, uh, and I'm not kidding. We really did. And uh, but that's that's what it was. I'm, I mean, I could see that that they that, and I understood. You know that that um, this was Disney. This was a big studio that wanted a big commercial movie. They didn't want a film war, a small film war. You know, that might get good reviews and might become a cult movie and so forth and so on, or might not, or might be forgotten. They didn't want that. They wanted to use the arena which they now decided was commercial and, um, you know, to make a big movie. And they wanted a happy ending and they wanted, uh, you know, um, especially um, as, is, as is in all these movies, uh, capitalism, you know, to triumph in the end. And they wanted to make sure the economic uh, aspect of it, uh, that this guy was going to make money, he was going to be successful. 
you know, because that's what that's what they kind of thought people wanted to see, and well, they turned out to be right. That is what people wanted to see. So, um, and my idea that, that that it's a bittersweet ending, and we don't know where it's really going, and he does marry this woman, and she looks like it might be okay, and he makes a martini for his father-in-law, but. Um, we don't really know what kind of ending on a question mark, and I ended most of the drafts, the early drafts, on that question mark. Are they going to be happy? Are they not going to be happy? Is this going to last? That kind of thing. So um, that they didn't want. They wanted a happy, you know, Hollywood ending. Yeah, I mean the the ending of the book, you know, it's it it's it's so cynical. And the book is this guy is hustling and he's desperate and he's unhappy. And the end is like, if you marry a, a rich woman, like. It's they the it, this waspy family does kind of live a charmed life and I, it's a beautiful scene at the end in which he uh, uh, is 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 goes through a confession and is forgiven by the priest and it's, yeah. it has so much emotional weight that he finally feels this weight yeah. of the world is off of him and in the movie there's certainly less introspection. In <laughs> Uh, one thing along those lines that we we um, sort of found odd is like you know if you've talked about this adaptation of uh, how do we make it a hit movie the movie itself doesn't I mean it gets closer but it doesn't go all the way to really following a sort of stereotypical structure of what you'd expect out of a out of a hit movie well, I, the first time we watched it it was surprised he's bartending you know five minutes in the movie and you know it's so much happens early <laughs> it's like. It does. It doesn't build it, right, it's, like it, a traditional Hollywood script. It, yeah, it's got some like sort of unstructuredness to it, and a little bit of that like listlessness, like you know, um, kind of feeling out of place uh, uh, type of, of thing. So, I mean, did did you feel like you were preserving some of that in terms of like it? it I don't. It, I mean, I, it was a very successful movie, but I don't know that it necessarily followed the formula of of how you would you would structure a you know a hit film. Yeah, that's a very good point. Right. Um, yeah, actually. Um you couldn't possibly do the make a movie out of that book without keeping some of that kind of journey aspect to it of his essentially you know stops along the way and uh, and vignettes along the way you couldn't there was no way you know uh, because there was no uh, he didn't he didn't meet a rich woman on page 10 and decide to marry her and then finally plot and do all kinds of stuff to do it and marry her on page 80 so it was more of a, of his journey, you know, through life and then, you know, meeting Cogwin and meeting the various women who he meets and finally ending up with, um, um, uh, with Jordan Mooney. So you're right. There was absolutely no way to structure that in your classic, you know, Hollywood uh, uh, form, uh, which they wrestled with until somewhere along the way they decided it was okay, <laughs> you know, to shoot it the way we had it. You know, I don't know what... I guess maybe I wore them down, or I don't, I don't think I did. <laughs> but uh, there was a way to, as you, as you say, you know, to have that, you know, kind of simple Hollywood structure in this movie. And and so, you know, and you know, the movie was very, very successful and continues to be very successful. Uh, but you know, it wasn't a huge mega hit. It opened number one on the weekend. It was it was a it was a pretty big hit as far as things go, but if, if not like a summer tentpole movie. Yeah, exactly. It ended up making a lot of money and still making money. I and mean, I get the statements, <laughs> and um, so it's still doing great. And uh, you know, I mean, uh, um, but it's not a it's not a conventional, and it couldn't be. And I think um, 
you know, they were very, you know, they get a bad rap, these guys at Disney. Uh, and it's kind of weird in a way, you know, because um, they were very good filmmakers for the kind of film that they wanted to make. And they were very effective at making the kind of film that Disney wanted to make. And um, they didn't, you know, as uh, uh, Jeffrey Katzberg once said to me, uh, the good news about you is that you're not an artsy-fartsy French filmmaker. <laughs> that's what he said to me. And I said, that's the <laughs> so, but that's So they were, they were very, you know, I mean, they, you know, uh, maybe they, they, they didn't make the greatest movies or maybe they didn't make movies that appealed to a certain you know, group of movie fans as opposed to another group of movie fans who like the movies. Uh, but they knew how to make a movie and, 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 and they knew how to structure it and shape it. And they understood at a certain point that this movie was not going to be a conventional Hollywood movie. They knew that. They knew. And um, by the way, I had that priest scene in one of the, in the scripts. And uh, it lasted pretty long into the process until finally somebody said, take it out. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't remember who it was. But I had that confession scene in for a long time, and I thought it was going to be in, and um, but for some reason they decided they didn't want to have it in. What? So, uh, but, but it lasted, you know, for a while. Well, I feel it's like one big difference between the Brian Flanagan of the book and the movie is the Flanagan in the book, He there's a lot more... I feel like self-loathing and uh, like he, and they're also he's a very literate guy. He cares about he wants to create great art. And Coglin is, you know, himself a novelist. And, you know, in the book, I mean, in the movie, Brian Flanagan, he only reads business books. Uh, was, <laughs> was that something was the fact that he stopped being, uh, a, a, you know, having artistic aspirations? Was that early or did that come late in the process? Uh you know, it's a good, I, I think it probably came earlier than later. That's the best way to put it. Um, uh, because um, this was not a favorite idea of Disney. And um, the idea that the guy wanted to be a great novelist. This is, and that his friend was also a writer. This was not an idea that, that I thought, that, that they thought, you know, would be interesting to people. Or would be, or would be you know, understandable to most people. So, um, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I could see that. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, uh, and you know, we, were, we, were, we were trying to make a big movie that would be more interesting and more, more, more accessible to people than a movie about a guy who wants to be a great novelist and who's extremely literate and who's read all the books. See, the thing about being a bartender is that you get a lot of reading in because you, you work till 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, uh, you go out for a while, get a little bit more loaded. If you don't meet anybody to come home with you, uh, you come home at 6 o'clock in the morning and you're just laying there. And so you read. <laughs> and um, I had always been a reader anyway, but I mean, during the period of time that I, that I was a bartender, about 10, almost 11 years, um, I, I, I was a voracious reader of everything. And a lot of the people I know who I worked with also. So, uh, uh, because there was just something that you did, you just, you know, there was not a lot of, uh, there was no internet back, you know, that, that you, you, that you could go on when you got home from Tennessee War. There was a book. There, there were books. So, um, but that became kind of, but that's a very inside thing. And, and I can understand why they felt that, uh, that they wanted to broaden the understanding of this character. So you make him a guy who wants to make it big in the, in the world. You know, wants to be rich, wants to be famous, or wants, wants to be successful. 
in a, in a way that everybody can understand. And I have to say that I have spoken to, you know, hundreds, maybe even a thousand. So I can't even, I don't even know anymore of guys who said to me, yeah, boy, that's me all over. Trying to figure out how to make it, trying to figure out, you know, the flugel binder, what's my flu? I mean, literally, people have, so Disney was right. This was a, this was a theme, or this, this, was a, this was a character trait, you know, that really rang a bell with a lot of people. So I just one uh, chron- uh, chronological thing I didn't quite get straight. Did you first write the script and then the, the script was bought, or was the book optioned and they said, please write a script? And if so, like, how much did you know it was going to be a, a, a kind of a big movie? Or were you thinking, oh, this is going to be a small movie, you know, kind of the, you know, the possibly gritty, possibly, you know. I When I'm reading it, I feel like something like a 1970s Hal Ashby kind of direction would really kind of capture the feel of the book is that he was mentioned uh, he was uh, he was approached to direct it really i did not that's and uh well he was so yeah they they approached it and they asked me i said yeah you can for sure and but you know i don't know what happened there he didn't direct it he passed <laughs> or they felt uh you know they they wanted to make sure they had a director who they could i wouldn't say control that's that's wrong and, and and unfair to them. But they wanted someone who they would have influence over. And you know, Hal Ashby was a very independent guy. He had a lot of, you know, he wasn't going to really. He was going. He was going to make his movie. No, I say like it's it's interesting because uh, this is the second movie we have covered. Uh, we did Cocktail. We did Convoy before that. And Convoy, Sam Peckinpah is the auteur of the movie. And I'd say that just and notorious right. stories about his fights with the studio around yeah. around maintaining the the artistic integrity of of a lot of it. Yeah. I feel cocktail. Uh, yeah. You know, even though yeah. I, I feel Roger Donaldson brings a lot of, I think, extremely competent, you know, engaging direction. We've always considered you the auteur of, yeah. of this project. It has, you know, it, there's just much more of a personal, interesting, you know, human angle that that comes from. Uh, which I mean, that's that's not a slight in Donaldson, but it's it's interesting as a kind of a commercial project how that works out. Yeah, well, you know, um, the one thing that they always said about keeping, you know, usually. If you adapt, it's very unusual for you to adapt your own book. Most of the time, they don't. They get nervous about the author, even if it's a screenwriter who's got who, who has screen credits. Um, you know, to adapt his own book. I remember when I did Boys from Brazil. I said to Harry Levin, I said, "Didn't you want to uh, adapt this book?" And he went, "Nah, they wouldn't let me." And I thought, "Geez, this guy's got hit plays." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, okay. And they wanted to write somebody else. So, but they stayed with me through all these drafts. Because uh, they said this guy was a bartender. No one else really will know this arena as well as he does. So let's just suffer with him instead of uh, you know trying to get somebody else on the show on on the movie or somebody get the movie re- you know rewritten according to what we want. Let's just go through this whole you know a uh, process with him because he knows the environment. So that's how I you know got to stay in the movie. And uh, I thought that was pretty smart of them, actually, because they would not have been able to get anybody, you know, uh, who obviously who knew this area as well as I did, unless they got another bartender or who, who would happen to be a writer. So, you know. so along, so, um, uh, and then I would have had him killed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, along the lines of, of sort of you being, you know, let's say you were, you you know, you you had your uh, your say in terms of of how the movie itself played out. 
Uh, did you have a, you know, of course, like uh, we talked about Hal Ashby as, as, as a you know director role. Did you have other aspirations for... Also, like in the early drafts, too. Like, if you imagined how... Yeah, the early drafts of, of a Brian Flanagan, more like the book's Brian Flanagan. Did, did, did you have a leading actor in mind or, or other, you know, specific uh, ambitions for, for who would be who in the movie? Yeah, I did it. This is, this is, I mean, I'm really telling it on myself, but... Um, Nick Nolte. I went to Nick Nolte. So I mentioned Nick Nolte in a meeting with them, and he had been in um, about Paul Mazursky movie. Uh, he'd played uh, based on a French movie, Michel, Michel Simon. Uh, I can't think of the name of the movie now. He'd been in a movie for Disney. And um, I said, well, you know, Nick Nolte would be good for this kind of like a broken down old guy. And he said, please. <laughs> <laughs> It was so contemptuous of me. This guy is poison. Not poison as an act, not not as an actor. He's a great actor, but I guess they figured, you know, he this was out who we, who they wanted to be the lead of this movie. And then um, I mentioned David Carradine. Don't ask me. I, I must have been. I don't know what. Anyway, I'm, I mentioned David. Same thing. They just kind of said, you know, just mind your own. But we, you know, you know, you know, we'll figure out who we're going to put in this. And of course, it turns out that they you know, shut up and just do what you have to do and get out of here, you know. And um, it turned out that they had Tom under contract. I never knew this for a fact. I was told this, so I don't know this for, of my own knowledge, as we say in in the congressional hearings. But um, uh, you know, I, they had him under contract, and they, and he owed them a picture, I guess. And so they were going to, you know, try to get him to do cocktail. And that's what ended up happening. And in, in, in trying to get him to do cocktail, obviously, you know, the script had to be changed radically, you know, from the from the Brian of the book and who was still in the script, you know, to the movie. So that's what happened. And um, before they even really pitched the movie to him, they had me make all these, you know, changes, make him younger, you know, uh, make him a guy who wants to make it in the, you know, in the money world, so to speak. And doing so, I had done that already. I, I was doing that already because they were going to shoot at him. And if they didn't get him, they were going to shoot at a younger. I mean, that's how they saw it. Of course, they were absolutely right. You know about that from a from a commercial point of view, anyway. You know, so um, yeah, yeah. So that's what happened. So I had the Nolte, David Carradine. Um, I can't think of anybody. There, there were a few guys around in those days. I can't remember who it was anymore. Who I kind of liked as well. And uh, but they weren't interested in my casting suggestions. Yeah, I mean, so, like, and I feel when you bring Cruz in, I, I mean, he has such like a like an energy for film of being like he is. He is not. You don't get the same kind of introspection, thoughtfulness, cynicism. He is a man of action and and, and energy. And, yeah, and, 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 and it works. I mean, they. I think for the movie, they they exactly. They, yeah. Yeah, the, I I think the his yeah exactly there's there's a so, super Tom Cruise moment the when he's singing Chantilly Lace uh, with Coglin it's the most stressful I've ever <laughs> seen anyone sing that song because <laughs> it's so powerfully yeah. like you yeah. can see his yeah. his his veins bulging as he's singing Chantilly Lace. <laughs> it's not the big bopper for sure, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I know he he, uh, he you know he had a. This is how he saw it. This is how he saw the role. And he was, look, I mean, it turned out great for everybody. You know, so, um, and he was, he, he was absolutely right, really, from a commercial point of view, and maybe even from a cinematic point of view, 
not to have that layback kind of noir, dark style. There's a movie called Bartender, I think, with Mickey Rourke. Uh, it's a Barbie Schroeder movie. It takes place in a bar. I think Bukowski. It's based on a Charles Bukowski story or a Charles mm-hmm. Bukowski poem or something. I don't. I don't have, have all the details. But I did see the movie. I was really curious to see how that style of filmmaking, you know, would work in that arena. And it's a fun, low-key noir movie that eight people saw. And Disney, Disney was not interested in making those kinds of movies. And uh, they, they didn't, you know, they didn't see it that way. And, you know, they didn't, and I'm glad they weren't interested, to tell you the truth. You know? Yeah, I mean, it uh, might because, have been a um, nice little movie. It would have been I, a very different movie. I think it would not have resonated in, in the, yeah. a major cultural touchstone in the way this has. But it's kind, exactly. of, it's kind of too bad they couldn't yeah. both exist. Because I think a, a straight adaptation of the, of the novel would, I think, really be a fascinating, you know, uh, project in itself, but you know, it's it'd be different. So I, well, I'm working on the sequel now, so we'll see what happens. So okay, that's the question: Is the sequel so? Is it the same DNA of the of the movie, as it were, or and is, and also we've read it, we've read in in other interviews um, both about a sort of a, a straight up cocktail to movie sequel, also about a, like a musical adaptation. Are those two different projects related? So what, what's going on there? The um, uh, the musical uh, people got very excited about making, and they still want to do it. But um, they get very excited about making a cocktail musical, making a Broadway, you know, thing out of it. And um, I just couldn't. Uh, the ideas that they had just seemed wrong to me. Yep. So um, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, especially in, in, in musical theater. Musicals based on movies essentially follow the same story of the movie, and uh, they don't they don't change this movie story. And, um, you know, they, uh, they add a score, and that becomes the musical. And then people like, you know, that's it. And um, they wanted to radically change the actual structure of the cocktail story. So that was after that. So that was it. You know, so, so I said, no, I don't agree with that. So, you know. Are you able to say in, in, that. In, in, you what, what, what kind of changes were they wanted to bring in? You know, they wanted to make it kind of Brechtian. They wanted to make it um, like, uh, you know, speaking out to the audience, and and um, they wanted to change, you know, they 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 wanted to make it darker, more serious. And I said, no, people are going to be, because you know, I, you know, walk in Times Square around Ticketmaster once in a while, and there are people lined up to buy tickets to all these Broadway musicals. They're not lining up to buy, you know, Bertolt Brecht's version of cocktail, <laughs> you know, and they wouldn't. Yeah, that's uh, that's like it. I mean, as much as I love, uh, love Bert, you know, but uh, you know, I mean, and, and, and so they, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to, you know, they 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 dropped. I guess they might have thought that I was kind of like an intellectual kind of like, which I, I'm I'm not saying I'm not, <laughs> but uh, um, so they dropped a lot of these theatrical, you know, terms, and I felt that it's. I said that's that's wrong. And oh, we're surprised. We're surprised that you said that. I said, well, you know, I mean, look, I, this is not that kind of theater. I just don't see it that way. You know, I see all of these movie adaptations on Broadway, and a lot of them are very big successes. You know, and but they're pretty much based on the movie. And if you don't want to do that, then fine, let's not do it. You know, I think people would definitely feel it's a bait and switch if they feel like, oh, it's going to be a Tom Cruise, you know, the movie. It's going to be fun and light. And I mean, I I love the darkness of the book, but you know, you can't you can't uh, dick around with the audience like that. <laughs> no, you can't, especially especially if 
I mean, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not blowing my own horn. Well, I guess I am blowing my own horn. Um, people love this movie. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I mean, at least three or four times a month I get letter emails from people. And um, a guy came to fix the lamp, the lamps in, in the apartment. And he said, and he looked around and he saw the book on the shelf. He said, so, I, I love that movie. I said, yeah, I wrote it. He, he flipped out. <laughs> he said he sees it once a year with his on their anniversary. Once a year on their anniversary, they you know have a little bottle of wine and they watch cocktail. And I thought, wow, that's great. And I was really, I can't tell you how how that makes me feel. I mean, I'm so moved by that. And the idea of this guy saying, hey, they made a musical. Let's go see the musical. And they go in, and you know, people are talking about the alienating the audience and all this kind of stuff. You know, that would be terrible. It would be a terrible disappointment to them, you know, so I didn't want to do it. And it's still, it's still hanging around. You know, I've, I've had conversations with people who are a little bit more amenable to that approach, you know, but that, that original approach of making it something completely different than what it was, you know, no, that, 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 that's just not going to work. It won't work. So then, yeah. uh, so so uh, in terms of the the sequel, though, is is the so the, what we'd read previously was that um, uh, that it would be kind of set later on with an older Flanagan. Is that is that still what you're where you're positioning that now? Divorced? Uh, yeah, a divorced Flanagan, which would be be darker in terms of a, a sequel, right? <laughs> I know. I was having uh, this guy from Esquire call me up, but he's a nice guy, and we we're just kind of talking. So he said, what do you, you know, and I just made up the whole story pretty much on the phone. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know, because because the logical uh, extension of this life, I mean, from the, at least if you take it from the book, if you don't take it from the movie, if you say what happens in in the in the cocktail sequel, if it's a book, is, you know, if, if 15, 20 years were gone by, the guy's an alcoholic, marriage didn't last, his kids aren't talking to him, <laughs> ex-wife's not talking to him. And um, he's, you know, he's struggling back pretty much in the new world of saloons, which I learned a lot about for, for, for in a variety of ways. And um, he's trying to fight his way back. And uh, he fights his way back. He has to quit drinking. And he has to do all this kind of stuff. He has to, you know, he, uh, anyway. So, um, and he's running one of these huge mega clubs, which are amazing. And I'm sure they, uh, they, they're going to go on forever. But they kind of pop-up clubs in the sense that they don't last forever, even though they're they're in huge uh, spaces and they go on, you know, like 16, 18 hours a day. And at four o'clock in the morning, when um, uh, and they have DJs and you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand people call you, you know, kind of go in there and it goes on forever and all kinds of shit's going on. And then when it's over, um, when it's four o'clock in the morning and they can't sell booze anymore, they people don't leave. I saw this. They drink water, you know. They, they they get a bottle of water for ten bucks, or whatever else they you know they're doing as well. And they stack stick stick around until six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning. So he's running one of these clubs, and it's completely illicit in the sense that they have to pay off the cops, they have to pay everybody off, and he's in charge of it. He's the fixer. So that's what he's doing now. And anyway, so I just told this guy this story, and you know he's. He put it in this piece, well, and, you know, okay. And I got like 15 phone calls from people, <laughs> you know. And, uh, well, that, that's a good idea. So now we'll see what happens. I don't know. Also, I've gotten interest. I'd say the, uh, you know, the movie cocktail has to end on basically a happy ending. But I've heard people say, like, 
you know, his whole thing is he he's has this new bar set up and he's going to franchise out to strip malls. And like, is that really the <laughs> best does. business plan at the time? You know, did this work out for him? And I don't. I, I think it's it's good to leave optimistically, but I'm kind of pessimistic that the Brian Flanagan in the movie would ever get on his feet. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's what I said, and everybody told me to shut up. I said, this is going to go bust and this franchise in the malls. Forget it. You know? And, because uh, that's not, you know, but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, but that's what they like. They they like the idea that, you know, he's, he's going to move on and become a bar mogul. A mall bar mogul, you know? Of course, so fine. And uh, But the truth is, if you take this, if you extend it logically a few years in the future, at, at least when the, when the movie and the book end, you know, there there are problems with this. And most bar owners become drinkers. Some of them become alcoholics. Uh, um, a very small percentage of them go to AA. Most of them become at least heavy drinkers. So you can see him three or four years down the line, a heavy drinker, two kids, you know, staying out late to try to make this idea work. And uh, problems with his kind of ex-wife, who's let's let's face it, is a, I mean problems with his wife, who's an aristocrat, you know she just is, and uh, that starts to come out, you know as as things go south for him. So and then he has to you know redeem himself, which which he can do, you know. So that's what the idea was. You know, I just kind of spun it out. You know, but, um, you know, I always think about, and, you know, when you have a book that you really love, like The Great Gatsby is a good example of that, and, uh, or other books like that, or, or movies, you go, what would, now what happens on day one after the end? You know, okay, the, book, the movie's done, the book's over, we've loved it, we think it's great. Okay, but life goes on for those characters. They don't disappear, I mean, they do, but they don't disappear. So now what becomes of them? What happens? So I've, I've always thought it'd be interesting to kind of do that, you know, to do versions of these books and movies, maybe not movies, but books for sure, you know, as of, as of you know, the, the end and then page one starting again. Now we're starting with the, the result of, uh, of what's happened in the book and the movie. So anyway, so that's what I was thinking about when I told Scott's story. And you say also, that, you know, the book Flanagan, uh, he has a happy ending, which is not remaining in the bar business. He actually escapes the bar business. But there is the implication that as he's writing this right. book itself, he appears to perhaps be a bit bored. Do, do you see, like, do you see Ennui setting in with, with the book uh, Flanagan as well? Yeah, he's, um, it's not going to last. He even says it in the book, I think, at some point, you know, or this might or might not last. And he, and he tells, um, uh, you know, his wife as well. You know, he doesn't see this. He doesn't see him, you know, a white-bearded patriarch, you know, surrounded by his grandchildren. He just doesn't see that, you know, and, and, um, and he admits it. He admits it. And so, and it's true. It wouldn't be. It just wouldn't be, you know. I mean, those, you know, it, it, not to get too, not to get too technical about the bar business, but the bar business is not a good place, you know, for relationships. Uh, they very rarely last. Um, I knew very few bar owners, for example, who had stable home environments. You know, it, that just wasn't the way it was. There were a couple of bar owners who were actually in business with their spouses, wives, and husbands. And uh, it was a little bit better for them, but uh, it didn't last either. You know, so if you if you own a bar, it's not a good 
you know, you know, recipe for for a domestic, you know, tranquility for sure. You know. And I think one thing to mention that it's funny if you like read on like you know online, a lot of people feel like Jordan Mooney is the dream woman. You know, and it's it's kind of funny too. Like the Dolly Mooney of the book is it's she has her own. She's kind of a kind of a weird, strung out, twenty year old druggy. You know, and, and Brian doesn't really respect her at first. He kind of takes her on cynically, but like she is not. I mean, the Jordan Mooney Mooney of the of the movie is centered, confident. You know. Put together and but without a whole lot of, but of she's substance. Also, she's yeah. also very yeah. She doesn't really have the same kind of. I, I she doesn't. She isn't really like. You don't think there's many people like her in the real world. <laughs> she's very. She's very idealized in the sense. And I think it works in the movie. Yeah, but it's yeah. Yeah, it's it's um uh, the Jordan in the book uh, is I don't know to me maybe because that's a little bit more of a realistic uh, reflection of the people I knew. In those days, you know, and um, I find very sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to her, and uh, I'm st- I find her a tragic uh, a kind of person in a way because this marriage is not going to last. Mm. He says it, and um, that's that. And you know, and and there will be a moment of happiness, as there always is, especially with a baby coming. That's always a nice thing. And but in the end, something will happen, and this marriage won't last. And we'll see what happens to her. When the, we know, we know what will happen to him. And uh, so, when I was doing the, um, and I told, I just told somebody the other day, actually, I said, you know, I can't really even imagine doing this movie without Tom and Elizabeth. Hmm. So you I know, mean, twenty years down the road, tremendous. and and they said, well, Tom won't do it. Blah blah blah. And uh, I said, well, I, I just can't imagine, unless you want to get uh, somebody, I don't know, Brad Pitt. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine anybody else in that role, and maybe it wouldn't be at any point in even doing the movie if you didn't have them back again to reprise this stuff, you know, and to make a statement, to kind of make a, uh, you know, to show how their characters have, have evolved over the years. And yeah, so anyway, I guess would would that work but, out uh, in terms yeah. of of t- like so the where you would want to write the characters would that line up with with their ages now? Because you said like twenty years, but this is actually like thirty years. They're they're twins. Oh, if it's unless you kind of set this ten years ago, they've they've aged well, so that's not impossible. Yeah, well, you know, Tom. Yeah, I mean that's okay. That's Hollywood land. Yeah, they've definitely aged well, and um, and the and the girls are are twins, and they're not talking to them, and and um, they're older. They have their careers. He's trying to get back with them or trying to get some kind of relationship with them. And, um, yeah, they've aged really well and they have, and she's with another guy now. And, uh, no, I got a whole, you know, uh, plot worked out here. You know, I won't go through all the details, but, and, uh, but it would have to be, you know, I, it would have to, I mean, I, it's hard for me to imagine making a good, a successful movie out of this. When, you know, the first, you know, first shot of the real, first shot, first reel, we see somebody else playing Brian <laughs> Flanagan. I mean, he is I just cocktail. It would be, yeah. Exactly. He is, you know, and, and um, so you have to convince him to do it now, whether he would want to do it or not. I don't know. I, I, well, there, there is precedent with, the, with okay. the Top Gun reboot, right? Exactly. And uh, that's, that's the argument I use. You know, and uh, I say, I mean, he's doing these. So maybe he'd want to do this. I don't know, you know. But um, 
Here's the thing, and you know, I feel like I'm pitching this to you guys. <laughs> That's uh, we'll, we're, we're sold. no, no, we're, yeah, we're sold. You got us. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I mean, uh, uh, I mean, you you did this movie with Tom Elizabeth. Forget it. It's a f- smash. I, I, the, the, I mean, at, at least it opened big. <laughs> at least it opened big. If it's a piece of sh- then it, then it'll die. But if it's if, if it's a halfway decent movie, it'll open huge for sure. And then you know, then you're in the lap of the gods. Either you made a really good movie, or you didn't. If you made a good, uh, you know, a movie, then it'll be a big hit. You know, it hits so, a sweet spot. Like right, the, the nostalgia right now. It's the it is yeah. like the perfect time. People people love this. It, it 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 speaks to them. The only problem is Tom Tom Cruise right now feels action movies are the only thing he's he's doing. Which is, I think, it's really uh, impressive <laughs> that he remains an action star at you know. As he goes into middle age, but it's it's too bad he can't find time to do stuff like this. Well, maybe he would. Yeah, look, I mean, I you know, I'd like to get into a room with him and whoever else he's hanging out with these days <laughs> and pitch um, pitch it. I'd like to get in and try to pitch a story to him. You know, um, who knows? Maybe I could. You know, I um, I have the first kind of a, you know twenty. I had the first two or three reels worked out in my head. I got a little. I even have a little presentation that, that I did here with the, you know, with the Final Cut Pro and everything. And um, who knows? I could show it to them. I mean, I don't know. You know, everybody says no, but and they say, well, let's do a TV series. It's like a TV series at a cocktail. All right, you know, but uh, but uh, it doesn't kind of have the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The gravity, the gravitas. That's the wrong word for cocktail, obviously. But um, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have the appeal. That a feature that a movie, will, you know, would have it just doesn't, you know. So you know, let's try to do the sequel. And if we can't do it, we can't do it. That's it. Move on. Well, you, you've got. You know, there's a you, great expression in Hollywood. Let's move. On. Let's move on with our lives. That's what they always say when they're firing you. We're going to move on with our lives now. You know? <laughs> okay, thanks. So, Very good. Well, you, which you, means you, I'm you, dead. You mean, but, yeah, yeah, you know. But anyway, so um, so let's 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 try to do it. You know the best way we can, the optimum way we can get this done. And if we can't do it that way, then we won't do it. That's okay. Absolutely. You know? yeah, well, you've got our our full support either way. Uh, but obviously, a, a feature length film would be would be most ideal from our perspective as well. So, a, a question I have for you is in in the book and the movie. There's like I feel a lot of strange bars there's this old seaman's home in the book and there's this world war ii themed bar in the yeah. book in the movie there's the bizarre cell block yeah. prison themed you know bar largely adapted from the how yeah. much of this came from personal experience and how much do you just like let's have a prison themed bar that's a, a it's a funny thing to think up well i thought up yeah i mean i uh um the old seaman's home uh there was a bar in an old seaman's home so that's an easy one and uh, there was an old Stevens home downtown here, which is now, I don't know what it is. I think it probably tore it down. And um, the World War II bar was actually um, a guy who used to come to a bar I worked in who would get completely sloshed. And he kind of talked about doing that. So um, there was also, uh, um, there were a bunch of bars in there that, that I kind of made up, but they were all kind of based on bars I knew. Mm. And cause, because theme bars were always kind of interesting to me because uh, they, they don't last long enough to recoup the money for the owner. You know, um, they just don't. And I know uh, down here, they, they, I mean, uh, uh, here in New York, they have a bunch of bars. They have a Will Ferrell bar. 
which which they had. Well, for, it was based on I think Elf. One of the characters he no it was based on it was based on Ron Burgundy. It was a Ron Burgundy bar, and they you know they I never went there, so I, I don't know. But they talked about you know they uh, they did it in what they considered to be Ron Burgundy decor. I don't know what that was. I guess they had, you know, shots of the movie or, 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 you know, screenshots of the movie. I don't know what it was. Anyway, they had, so, you know, it, it lasted as a novelty, then it died. Mm. And so most of these theme bars die. And so I've always found that funny, but people keep doing them anyway. And, uh, the, the, you know, they, they don't, uh, um, they don't research it or they feel that, uh, they're, you know, they're the ones who are going to succeed. You know, even when they're, they're confronted by the fact that all these movies have failed, all these, all these bars have gone down the tubes, you know, mine's going to last, that kind of attitude, you know. So, yeah, so a lot of these bars I made up, um, out of kind of, uh, you know, conversations I had with people and, you know, stuff like that. Do you, uh, so of the various types, you know, theme bars versus, you know, sort of a um, dive bar, uh, you know, tiki bar, like, is there a sort of bar you feel, you know, at your element in or that's kind of like your, you know, happy place versus, you know, uh, uh, the other types? I only went to bars that my friends worked in. There you go. So, I mean, I, I never, yeah, I I just went to bars my friends worked in and, and they pretty much came to visit me and that's how... You know, uh, that was my social life, actually, in a way. I would go on, on my nights off. I'd go to some bar where a friend of mine worked and, uh, you know, hang out there for a while and then go home. Um, I never uh, went to strange bars or other people's bars where I didn't know people. And then, you know, I, I don't know why that, that was, but um, because I, it was kind of like a place where I knew I didn't have to you know, make an appointment, make a date with anybody, or, or say, I'll meet you here, meet you there. I knew if I walked into this place, I'd find people I knew, and I could hang out and have a good time. You know, so um, that was it. And I never went to other bars, and I always felt a little strange in other bars where I didn't know anybody, you know, in a way. So um, I never went to, you know, and, and uh, the only bars I really went to were way back in the day before I became a bartender when I was a reporter for the New York Post. And I would go to a newspaper bar hangouts, newspaper hangouts. So I'd go to a place called the Page One. Um, I'd go to a place called the Lion's Head, where a lot of writers and newspaper people uh, people hung out. I went to places uptown where the people from the from the Times hung out. So I would go, you know, to newspaper bars as well, actually. So I, I think one question, like, so the cell block, insofar it's you know it's it's made up, you know, and then they actually like filmed it in an old Toronto jail. Did you like, or did you have this in mind or something that, you know, that it would be filmed? Cause it's a weird set location as, as it also framed the multi-story poetry readings with the last jumping <laughs> poet, which again is adapted from the last, the old Siemens bar. But I'm kind of wondering how, the, how this all got transformed. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird place in the final, final uh, version. They just, you know, you want to you want to figure out the strangest, weirdest, greatest place you can figure out to have the scene, have a bar. So just made up the cell block. It just seemed to me that that would be a funny place to have a bar. I didn't know, uh, of course, obviously I didn't know that that, uh, that that they would find an old jail in Toronto. That I didn't know. So they were happy. They were thrilled that they actually knew a location. And um, but yeah, I just I just try to kind of try to figure out the most. 
absurd, insane place to have a bar and to call a bar. And, um, you know, the idea that uh, a lot of people have said to me, well, a bar is a prison and, you know, given a lot of metaphoric, you know, weight to it. Well, that's fine. I mean, I really didn't uh, think of it as that way. I just tried to figure out the craziest place to put a bar and an old jail would be a crazy place. So and then it turned out that they actually had a great place to shoot it, which made it great. Actually, you know, they didn't have to build it or or or, or, or turn something else into it. You know, so it's kind of but that weird, was just a lucky break. You know, a weird panopticon but, looking place. Yeah, yeah, it was huge too. They, 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 they it was, uh, and then I, and then I decided, and I, I, you know, I can't really say why I decided that that would be a bar. Uh, uh, kind of modeled on a prison would be a good place to have poetry readings. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> it works. I, I just kind of, you know, so, you know, yeah, it did work. Things come to your head. Things come into your head. And then later on, you can't really explain, you know, what the thought process was. And it just, uh, just kind of arrived in your brain. And there it was. And uh, so I can't really, I didn't have a deliberate, in other words, I, I didn't have a plan. What happened was I thought, gee, man, I'm in jail at it. That would be great. Have the, have the uh, you know, like the prisoners in, in the jail, you know, reading their suffering poetry. I must have seen something somewhere where prisoners in jails were reading poetry, but I don't remember that. I, I'm just I'm just trying to guess. Well, it, I don't really it, know. it worked out beautifully. Uh, it worked out, somehow it all came together, so it works out in the end. Um, we we have a couple couple other just uh, points of business we wanted to we wanted to get through. Just stuff we're stuff we're curious about. If you if you have time for like kind of a lightning round here of of a couple things, this is great. Um, okay, so uh, first Actually, is okay. Um, uh, there, there's a quote uh, on the um, well, it's on the the movie poster. Yeah. Uh, when he pours, he rains. Is is that your line, or were you involved with that in any way? <laughs> that's the genius of the marketing team. Ah, oh, that's a great line. It's an amazing the, line. <laughs> and it's the, uh, these three people. It was uh, two guys and a woman, older woman. I don't know what the, what their what their uh, uh, division of labor was. But they they were responsible for all the great marketing campaigns, and if you remember, you don't remember, you guys are, you guys are probably too young. But in the eighties, uh, Disney had a lot of hits, and they had a string of hits, ten or twelve in a row, including Cocktail. Cocktail was in that mix as well. And these people did the marketing for all of those uh, movies, and they were great. And then at and then after Cocktail, or maybe after one more movie, I don't know what happened, but they got fired, which was really like a shock to everybody. And um, we never never understood what happened there, but anyway, that's what happened there was they left. Hmm. So um, yeah, and it was those three people, and they did that line. And when I saw that line, I told this woman, I said, you know, this is, I would take credit for it if it were a good line, but this is such a great line that I don't feel right taking credit for it, <laughs> saying that I made it up because it's too good, you know. So yeah, it's a great line. It really is, and they won. I think they won something. They won like a best poster or some kind of ad, uh, advertising council award for the. But yeah, they did yeah, for, for the poster. They were great. So uh, as you far know? as far as kind of the, the, the screenplay in, in the bars uh, in the in the film, it's actually TGI Fridays. Was that was that as written? And also, was that product placement, or was that just like, oh yeah, let's just make it Fridays because it's easiest? I, I it's no, no, they no, it wasn't as written. They just picked TGI Fridays. And uh, which is now called Baker Street, it's now First Avenue. And but they still have uh, photos from the movie up, and, you know. 
And um, they just picked that as a, as, as, as a location. I guess they got product placement or whatever it was. I don't know. You know, but uh, it was a good bar to shoot in as well, as I remember. So you know, that helped. <laughs> Uh, one other, so um, we uh, were we we know this, that um, dingaling is an invented drink. We've 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 read that, or that you invented it to to rhyme, I guess. Uh, we attempted to to uh, construct a recipe for what we thought a dingaling would be, uh, just based on '80s cocktails in general, and kind of going for that gimmicky TGI Fridays style cocktail. So we wanted to uh, read you right. our recipe and just see how close it aligns to what you what you think a dingaling should be. So here's here, here's what we concocted. Uh, our dingling has uh, a quarter ounce vodka, one ounce Kahlua, one ounce ouzo, one ounce creme de cacao, uh, perfect, so half white, half dark, uh, two ounces heavy cream. We then lay a Twizzler soaked in vodka in a cocktail glass, uh, shake the ingredients, and then strain into that glass and garnish with a maraschino cherry and sprinkles. Sprinkles are a mistake. <laughs> yeah. We also tested this as well. <laughs> Wait, how closely does that align to your vision of the dingaling? <laughs> it would be great, but you have to layer it. Yeah. Then, yeah. In other words, you have to make a – and then you have a, you have a fantastic drink. So you have to find out uh, the relative weights, which I used to know, actually, because I used to make um, uh, zombies and all those layered drinks. I used to make uh, a Pousse Cafe and all those drinks. So if you get the relative weights of all those liquors so you can kind of layer one on top of the other, and then you stick the vodka-soaked uh, Twizzler right through it, you know, right through the mixture so people can sip it and get and sip up through the layers so they get the flavor of all the layers. So, yeah, you can do that. I don't know about the sprinkles, though. That was a mistake. Don't do that. You know, Jimmy? They just, they just dissolve and make a mess. And, yeah, yeah it yes, doesn't. They sink. It, they're, they're the wrong way. Yeah. You have to be a, a chemist to know this right. But, but speaking yeah. of, in the book, you there's a whole <laughs> section about layering a zombie. Uh, and I'll say this in in the book says like yeah it usually aren't layered. I've never heard of a layered zombie outside of this. Is this something you actually would make layered zombies? Yeah, I used to make uh, layered zombies. I wish I knew. I did two kinds of rum. I can't really remember. And uh, and then it, uh, two kinds of rum. Uh, um, some fruit juice is stuck in there. I could look at it. I could find it. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll send you guys an email. I'll, I'll look. Because I, cool. And they used to make that, and they used to make the Puskas, which, which has seven kinds, or six or seven kinds of drinks, uh, green chartreuse, yellow chartreuse, and it was a big show-off kind of thing I used to do. Everybody would watch, and I would, you know, and you know, with, with bated breath uh, as I did this, because, you know, the slightest move, you know, and, um, and the boozes you know, kind of bleed into one another, so they don't work anymore. And, yeah, I used to do that, yeah. We did a lot of that kind of stuff. We, you know, it, it was very loose there. Uh, we didn't, we didn't um, measure, which I think is interesting. Um, we, you know, like quarter ounces, half ounces. We did it all by free pour. It was all done by free pour. Like a like a timing and, pour, uh, or you know, like ca- counting in your head timing as you were pouring, or or, or just judging it. Exactly, a timing pour. You guys know about bartending, man. <laughs> it was a timing pour. Oh, great. Okay, cool. Yeah, great. it's that great. Tr- you know, you can pull that trick you know, when you're making the drink, and then you can, and then you time it, and people are watching you, and then you pour right to the top, and you don't, you know, so you pour the whole glass out, and it's right to the top of the um, of the cocktail glass, and you haven't wasted anything. Oh, how did you do that? Well, you 
you know, you counted it. One, two, three, four, five, six, boom, stop. And that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was the timing. We did all timing, uh, you know, caps. Because it was too, it, it took too long. And I noticed uh, that when I go to bars today, bars are packed, you know, like, like restaurant-type bars. But the bartenders have to measure out all the drinks. And it takes a lot longer to do that than it does just to pour them. Mm. And so, I mean, we would never, I mean, we would never have even thought of actually, you know, frankly, of measuring because we had these, you know, busy bars and, you know, three or four deep, everybody wants their drink. And if they had seen us kind of, kind of, you know, measuring out jigger from, you know, you know, jiggers here, jigger there, that wouldn't have been, you know, it just, it, it just wouldn't have happened. The only place that happened was in uptown, you know, hotels where they kept a really rigorous count you know, of, of of the percentage of booze that they poured. So everything had to be done by Jigger so they could get their accounting at the, at the end of the night. But that was uptown, places like the Waldorf, places like that, you know, big hotels. So, and, and, and so speak, speaking of, and the, then, of, of kind of the, you know, that, that exactly, the like being, you know, kind of conservative or, or ensuring that exactly the right amount or, or less than the right amount is, is, is getting into the customer's drink. There is a conceit in the movie, and I, I forget if it's, also, I, I think it's just a conceit of the movie, which is uh, that you know Coglin is is teaching Flanagan you know all these techniques for minimizing the amount of alcohol that ends up in the customer's glass. You know the ice mountain, the um, the long pour, pour the, the short pour. pour. Is is that like was that a, an yeah. intentional conceit around like something that you you know took from your personal observation that that was actually a thing? Because it's a little weird in like generally the bartender's interest is aligned with you know making the customer happy, not necessarily making the boss happy, right? Right. Well, you got to walk the fine lines, man. You know. Um, yeah. It's um, uh, the top pour was where you uh, uh, and I. I see this now, by the way. I must say, I'm kind of uh, you know bemused by it. Um, the uh, you, uh, you make the mixing part of the drink, and then you just pour the booze on top. That's called a top pour. So the first sip that the person gets is full alcohol. And, you, you know, usually in most cases, that's, you know, that's what lasts. Um, uh, the Ice Mountain uh, was done a lot in hotels uptown, actually, in the places I just spoke about, because they had very, very large glasses, uh, you know, large rocks glasses or large old-fashioned glasses. But they had to pour an ounce of booze in those glasses, and it looked awful. <laughs> it looked like they were just pouring a, a trick of booze with huge glasses. But if you put a lot of ice in... Then you know the level of liquid you know goes up. Well, comedian's principle, you know, uh, uh, the level of, of 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 liquid goes up. So that's where the that's where the that's where the ice mountain came from, you know. And all the other stuff comes from cheating, I have to say. But but that's the reason for it, you know. I mean, uh, if you pour a, it's just ugly, you know, to pour a small shot in a large glass, and people hate it, you know. So that, that's where that came from. Yeah, you know, the ice mountain. They all are. They all were kind of devices. I feel like in in the book, there's a lot more. I think of the dynamics of the workplace all the way up to management, and there's all these different characters in the book, uh, Al, Albano and and Steve, and who are I think a lot of times paranoid over being cheated because everyone is cheating them, and it's always this fun kind of workers versus the management dynamic. And it's funny in the, in the movie that Coglin yeah. he's he's a worker, but, but the, the boss is the happier. <laughs> what is it? The happier the boss, the the happier you are <laughs> when the boss is happy. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. kind of it's kind of weird. He's not really. Trying Trying to, like he's a hustler, but he's actually making more money for Fridays. Like, what's up with that? 
Well, you know, <laughs> you can't have a, you know, I mean, uh, you can't, <laughs> you can't have bartenders stealing. I mean, it's simple as that in that kind of a movie. You know, I mean, there's no, there's no bartender theft going on in the cocktail movie. Everybody's straight as a straight arrow, putting all the money in the register, you know, and giving the bosses his, you know, his correct count. That's what happens in the movie, even even Coughlin. You know, uh, absolutely. You just, you're going to lose, you know, you're going to lose your people if you have them stealing. You know, I mean, most people are going to go, oh, he's stealing. That's, you're not supposed to do that. You know, that kind of thing, you know. So um, in the book, of course, obviously, you can tell the truth. And um, owners are paranoid about, about, the, uh, about the help stealing from them because the help is stealing from them. Um, you know, and they're stealing from them everywhere you can think. They're walking out of the kitchen with steaks buried <laughs> in their pants. I mean, you name it. You know? I mean, that's what's going on. Now, I mean, I don't know if that's still true anymore. I, uh, I have no, I have no idea. I really don't. But um, I kind of would, if you asked me to make a bet, I would bet. Yeah, it's still true. You know, they've made it a lot tougher to steal now. Uh, with all the computerized, um, uh, you know, uh, registers and the way you ring up drinks and everything. But still, I'm sure some guy figured out a way. He's figuring out a way to do it. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. You know. But, yeah, they're, they're very paranoid about being a ripped off. I think all retail owners who have to trust employees with cash um, get a little nervous about theft. And uh, I think that's like a common thing, and that leads to, I don't want to get into my Marxist bag here, but, um, you know, that leads to the kind of antagonism between worker and boss and the mistrust between worker and boss, because there are many, many workers, including bartenders, who don't steal and who resent, you know, being accused of, 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 of stealing, that kind of thing. So that kind of tension exists. And then you have the boss who's always, you know, has spotters and people hiding and, you know, brings people in to try to catch, you know, the people from stealing. And there's a big industry in that now, actually, of, you know, uh, because it's a whole, I mean, the world we live in is like a snitch world. Everybody's a snitch one way or another these days. So, um, you know, uh, the owners are worried about that. They're worried about that money, about, the, you know, theft. Than they always were. I don't think. I think they're more worried now than they were back in the day when I was a bartender. I think. I think they kind of accepted the fact that you were buying drinks for your friends or you were buying drinks for big tippers, and that was okay because you were a popular bartender and people were coming in and they would spend a lot of money. I think they understood this. They understood that. Uh, I don't know if that tolerance exists today in bars. I don't know. Yeah, and speaking you know? of, uh, you talk about you know kind of. Uh, there's a fun scene in the book where they're using computers in early age to find out that he is blackballed, you know, from all these bars for some reason he can't even say. Uh, right? So they go, oh, look, at, look at Big Brother breathing in my yeah. neck. And speaking of computerization, uh, another book uh, we got our hands on and, and read and enjoyed, uh, Corporation Freak, is about your personal time at IBM. Uh, and it's a really fun book yeah. about... I guess, screwing over the boss, <laughs> you know, hustling, and uh, you know, in the end, I'll say this: we're in Silicon Valley here. I'd say intensely relevant. Reading about IBM, uh, you know, in 1968 feels a lot like what's going on in Silicon Valley today. I know it's so odd. I mean, I see that myself, and um, but I'm, you know, I mean, I I sometimes wonder. I might be in, if I wrote that book today, they might. Uh, I might be in jail. <laughs> uh, the world, 
I mean, really, the corporate state that I talked about, I thought was taking over the world in 1968 in the person of IBM and all those, uh, where, where was it? especially IBM, because they were, they were the biggest in those days, um, has now come, has now come to being. Uh, you know, uh, it didn't exist then uh, uh, the way it does now. And if I wrote corporation, for, for example, if I went into Amazon, you know, to work for Amazon, and I hustled Amazon in some way or another, and they did exactly the same thing I did for uh, IBM, I think they would try to throw my ass in jail. Yeah, non-disclosure They would come down. I mean, like, yeah, no, they would. They would troll me. That's a minimum they would do would be to troll me, yeah. and that would go on, and it would take off from there. It's a mean, snitchy world. And what happened um, uh, in, uh, in Corporation Freak was, you know, the first week it was out, I went to a bookstore called Brentano's um, in Greenwich Village, and I asked the, I asked the guy, the clerk, I said, How's, do you have a book called Corporation Freak? He says, yeah, this is really odd. A guy came in and bought every copy. <laughs> he says, you're actually outselling love. It was a was a popular book of the day, big popular book of the day, and then made a movie out of it. He says, and he and this guy he even made me go downstairs and get the get the other box that we had. He bought everything. And it was some guy from IBM, and they had just. I mean, their way of dealing with it was to take the book off the market by buying it. Well, that worked. Out, that works out well it, for it you. <laughs> yeah. For me, except the publisher was a thief, so it didn't matter. But I mean, um, still, it worked out well. And uh, it was, um, I mean, it, it, it wasn't that huge of printing, and he didn't go back and do a second printing anyway. That's a long story. But um, it was just amazing that that, uh, that that's how they dealt with it then. Today, I, I don't know what they would do to me. But you got to know that they would be on my case one way or another, you know. And that's sad because uh, we have a pretty big, I mean, you know, we're, you know, slowly but surely, that corporate state actually took hold, took over. Yeah, and I, I think it's 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 interesting. You talk about kind of the the movie operates on the logic of you know, kind of the corporation of Disney on down giving instructions, and the end of the the movie has the moral. He kind of stops being a hustler and he starts being a worker and provider. You know, and it kind of has this lesson, like, oh, yep. be a good little boy and 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 work hard. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's funny how like a, a real hustler based story is like probably unpalatable to a to be a big hit. That's right. They're not going to do it. The hustler will not make it. The hustler will either be redeemed, turn into a a willing worker, or will come to grief. You know, and the only time you see the possibility of a hustler making it is in pre-code movies, movies made before 1934, uh, you know, before the code set in and before the Hayes office came into, you know, and started censoring Hollywood movies and started insisting on happy endings. Um, there you can see guys getting away with murder, robbery, all kinds of stuff in those early movies. You know, other than that, no, you'll never see it. It's capitalist realism. And it's as, it's as pervasive in its way as socialist realism. I mean, it's not as bad as socialist realism was because they don't put us, you know, in, uh, in gulags or anything like that. But um, they definitely, you know, enforce a standard. Um, and that is that, uh, you know, that people who game the system will not succeed. So I, I guess uh, yeah, so semi-related to that, do, do you still consider yourself a hustler? And, and if so, like in what sense? I don't consider myself a, no, I'm not a hustler anymore. I'm, I'm not a, you know, 
<laughs> I'm just an old guy. <laughs> but um, um, I, I don't, I don't consider myself a hustler now because I've been, uh, you know, I found a hustle, and the hustle was writing, and um, that kept me going, and and still does. I mean, I'm still doing it, and I'm still making money at it. That became my hustle, and when I say hustle, it's because as sincere as the act of writing is and how, you know, uh, there's a certain amount of, of, uh, of what's the word I'm looking for, um, understanding the market, politics, uh, you know, self-promotion, hustling. That goes with it. And if you're not good at that part of it, then the work you do won't, won't, won't even see the light of day. Or if it does, it'll be misinterpreted or just, you know, ignored. So there's a part of, of, of writing and art in general you know, that involves a hustle. And um, I don't do that um, as well, or I don't do it at all. I guess you could say I'm doing it now, you know, talking to you in a way. But, um, uh, you know, there is that part, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that involves a hustle. In other words, a kind of an insincere, um, cynical way of manipulating situations, people, events, you know, to your advantage. Uh, which you don't believe in. Well, here's a question about about uh, I guess cynicism is uh, I guess when you're talking about you know uh, Ira Levin not not adapting his own stuff, it's unusual you adapt your own work. You said because you are you know you you knew you knew the source material of of bartending, so that was important. But see, on top of that, it feels like it's very hard. I I couldn't imagine taking your own work, your novel you care about, and changing it. I think a lot of novelists wouldn't be able to, you know, detach themselves that way or like it would just feel like surgery on yourself or something. And like, do you, th- was that hard or would you able to kind of detach yourself and just kind of, you know, <laughs> and, and hustle and be cynical about it? You know, I was able to detach myself. Why? Because I had already, I'd been writing TV and movies for, I don't know, almost 15 years at that point. And I'd written a lot of TV episodes, and I'd written a, you know, a, a, a couple of movies, and I'd been involved in, in, in you know, in, in, in this kind of struggle between the writer and the producer, writer, director, whatever it is, you know, rewrites, constant rewrites. So to me, it, and it made, that just was the process. And if I wanted to get on my hind legs and say, I will not change my beautiful work of art ever for anybody, they would have gotten somebody else to do it. And I would have probably walked in front of a truck somewhere, you know, so uh, um, I knew that I had to stay with this, you know, um, and try to do, you know, uh, as good a job as I could do and make them happy, but at the same time, you know, keep the, keep the spirit of the peace alive. Because, you know, like I said, the only other alternative is to quit. <laughs> to go, fuck you, I'm not going to do this anymore. You can't do this. You can't touch. And also, I really have to say, and maybe this is a failing of me. Maybe this is why I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, a Nobel Prize winner. Um, I don't, never really took my work that seriously that I felt that it was inviolate and couldn't be changed and it was this great, shining, you know, work of art. I never really felt that way, and I, I don't now about anything I ever did. And, uh, you know, I mean, I take it seriously. I, I try to obviously work my... I do the best job I can do. I work hard. I fight for it. I fought like crazy during cocktail. God, through 40 or 50 drafts, I fought them every day. But at the end, at the end of the day, I don't really, you know, I don't feel, you know, people say to me, 
boy, what they did to your book, it's terrible. It's a trap. It's blasphemy. It's this and that. And, you know, they're sincere. People who say that to me, say, I don't feel that way. You know, I don't take it seriously. They once said to Faulkner, you know, how do you feel about, about what they've done to your books? And he said, they haven't done anything to my books. My books are in the library. Anybody <laughs> wants to read my books can read them. And I guess that's why I feel about cocktail. You know, the book's in the library. You can read it. So, but I, I guess I just don't take it that seriously, you know. So kind of kind of along those lines, we are very curious. Are, are any of the early drafts of, of the, the, you know, screenplay, have they ever been made available or would you ever make them available? Yeah, I would. I'm trying to uh, – <laughs> I got a, a call from somebody who wanted – who's doing some research on something else. I don't know what, uh, 80s movies or something. And he wanted – and, you know, I said, look, I, I don't have – they're in a storage unit under 10 tons of stuff. And, um, I mean, there are literally millions – I would say tens, maybe hundreds, hundreds of thousands of pages of all the stuff I've worked on. And they're – I did keep a lot of the drafts of not all of them, but you know, when, you know, when things really got you know frenetic, and we would, and when we were doing a draft a week as we as we approached you know the shooting, and we kept making changes, changes. I didn't keep those drafts, you know, the blue pages, green pages, yellow pages, you know, all those drafts. But I did keep a lot of the early drafts, maybe fifteen or twenty of them. And um, I know one person who has the very first draft I wrote. I'm trying to get him to give it to me, but he's. Holding on to it. Well, so that, we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, if you yeah, ever yeah. make progress on that, a we are extremely interested, and I, I mean, I think it would just be a service to humanity to get that out there somewhere. Okay, in that case, <laughs> you know, so I, uh, I should get them actually because people call me every, every once in a while. They want to do this, they want to do that. I should do it. Yeah, I will do it. I actually, what it involves is me going to the storage unit and you know, and spending the whole day there. And they're pretty gloomy, dismal places, you know. And the storage unit that I have, actually, there were homeless people who have rented a storage, and they live in the unit. They live in the units next to me. Uh-oh. You know? <laughs> and it's it's really tough to see that. Um, because what they have to do is they they have to get in, uh, you know, before the place closes, about 11 o'clock, I guess. So if they have jobs, and if they can't get in, by 11 for whatever reason, then they're, they're out on the street for that night. And, I, you know, and I've spoken to these guys, and as far as they're concerned, there's three of them. As far as they're concerned, um, this is a much better life. they got a nice clean unit, and they have all this stuff, and they're not afraid of anybody ripping them off. So, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, a, it's hard to get too excited about a book when you see what the fuck's going on everywhere else, you know. But anyway, so... But I I should go in there one day and yeah I'll do that and I'll contact you guys first. Awesome, we would be we would be more than honored. Well, um, uh, we we do want to um uh not take too much more of your time. Is there anything you want to mention in terms of like recent projects or stuff you um you want anyone out there who's listening to to check out? Well, I just finished a book about being drafted in the '60s, and I'm trying to sell it now, and you know how I try to dodge the draft. And um, it's it's a funny book. It's funny, you know, kind of like along the lines of Corporation Freak, uh, and and also it's kind of uh, it takes me through a, a certain period of the '60s there, and uh, you know my struggles. So I'm you know I'm trying to sell that. So if it if you you know if it comes out, it'll, it'll be called Drafted, and we'll see what happens with it. I don't know, but I just finished it. Excellent. So we'll All see. right, looking forward yeah. to it. 
Well, it's yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure well, chatting. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we learned a ton, uh, and um, uh, we're just so happy that, uh, that that you're able to take the time. And if you again ever find uh, ever find that draft, we will be over the moon. So thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.